0: Welcome to the Fencing Podcast, I'm Sean and there's no gap this time because it's an interview only episode. I had a recent visit to the Liam Paul Centre in London, uh, visiting our lovely sponsors, and while I was there I got a number of interviews. And the first two here today are with Ben Paul, the Managing Director of Liam Paul Equipment Company, and with John Willis, now the Manager at the Liam Paul Centre in London, but a former winner of the Heidenheim Men's Epic World Cup. Hope you enjoy them and there's more to come. Hello Ben, welcome back to the Fencing
1: Podcast. Hi there, yeah, good uh, Good to be back. I enjoyed my last interview immensely. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, I enjoyed them too. <laughs> um, and I'm here today at the Leopold Centre in London. Yep, uh, so this facility, I suppose, after 2012, I was quite disappointed that Uh, the sort of original plan for the Olympics, we were kind of promised a dedicated home for fencing. Mm. And I always thought this would be a kind of key cornerstone to producing Olympic and world champion fences. All the other sort of top countries have a dedicated home or spaces where people can go and train, and we didn't have one. It was kind of promised and then taken away. And so I thought that it was necessary for Leon Paul uh, to invest and try and build a, a facility that would at least uh, equate to some of the other facilities that the French, uh, Japanese and some of the other uh, sort of top countries that are uh, emerging so that the athletes had an actual chance, a better chance of producing consistent international results. So that was kind of the, the original premise behind the idea.
0: Okay, so t- tell me a little about the, the construction of it. It's, uh... So,
1: obviously, we're in London, and London has high rental costs. But what you can do in London is put mezzanine floors. So, these are kind of like suspended floors in warehouse spaces. And fencing actually doesn't need much height. Mm. Um, obviously, you've got a person and a sword, so the ceiling can't be too uh, low, but it doesn't need, you know, a huge, that huge area. So if you can find warehouse spacing and put in mezzanines, then um, it reduces your, well, it doubles your space of your yeah. area. You can quite often find other uses for the space downstairs. So, so we have it basically split as our warehouse and shop facility uh, for distributing all of our, our gear. Um, And then the upstairs is this fencing center part. Uh, Also, you get some relief, uh, tax relief, because you're not using the. – you're sort of effectively doubling the space and using less uh, less, less, less less footprint, footprint basically. Um, To put in a mezzanine floor like the one here, um, it's about £80,000, which is quite a substantial sum of money, but it, it sort of soon saves up over the years. And because it's suspended, it kind of automatically is sprung. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of the concrete warehouses that we, that you have that are built, the floor needs a fake floor put on top of it anyway yeah. to be able to not kill the fence's knees. So, it actually works out quite a decent uh, solution for fencing. Yeah. So, I, I do think that is something that other places and, and venues can learn, sort of certainly uh, sharing facilities, maybe with a sport like archery where you don't need the floor doesn't matter on the concrete floor in the basement would be an ideal solution. Yeah. You know, if they can find funding, you get an archery club downstairs and a fencing club upstairs. You're kind of then looking at how you can share the costs of dedicated facilities. Um, So that was quite a sort of interesting part. Huge amount of wiring goes into these buildings, lots of cost on that. Hoping that we will have our, our second development wireless fencing set which is effectively a real replacement system. So you can take your additional, your original kit with score and time and remote, mm-hmm. just plug in this little box, and then just get rid of all of your spools and your cabling around. So then a lot of the cost that we had to put in here with all the under underfloor wiring, all the suspended wiring, repairing all the spools, that all disappears. Yeah. So hopefully we can reduce the cost of making fixed venues mm-hmm. um, by also making it wireless.
0: Right. Okay, that's a, that's a really interesting development, actually, yeah. I well, look forward to seeing that in full flow here. Yep. Um, the centre is used for a variety of purposes. I mean, here today there's a, a midterm training camp for, for young fencers, the yep. British foilists and several international foilists here training when I when I arrived.
1: Yep. So we, we kind of now – originally we were renting the facility to the sort of um, UK sport and their sort of performance programme, but when their funding got cut – we are effectively allowing – we have a kind of a more open-door policy. So it's not just British people fencing against British people. So we've got, for example, Chupinich and some of the other world-class fences coming, Kassar and others are visiting. This, I believe, gives our fences that are here the chance to fence other top fences without necessarily having to travel. Maybe they can try – different. or being in competition, so maybe they can try a different technique, a different tactic or whatever, without it being – the world championship <laughs> you know um so uh i think that's worked quite well for us and i think the fences here that are using it the the you know the the british teams that are using it are benefiting from that and the other sort of difference that we've had um i suppose is any because anyone can come i i believe that people that are outside what i would call the top sort of frozen positions mm-hmm. feel that they have a chance to come and try and, and mix with the best yeah. and then maybe get into that group mm. as before it kind of felt a bit closed door and you're yeah. either in and then you're in and you can never get in, y- y- you know? And, and I think that, that change has meant that we've now got lots of fences pushing yeah, and everyone's pushing each other to try and get into the, the top position. But that's what what I think is needed and, uh, uh, and is an important part of it.
0: Yeah. it's competition for, is in the squad and he's exactly. just going to get selected and
1: yeah and it's just not yeah. oh it's always Ben Paul because you know he's always been there it's everyone fighting and everyone has a chance to take my my spot yeah,
0: yeah. no that's that's, that's a good thing um, you run a lot of competitions here I mean not quite every weekend but uh,
1: yeah so we got John, John Willis work, working every weekend uh, I don't know how long he'll keep doing that for before he kills me or someone else uh but he does a fantastic job running events
0: um no it's funny it's interesting because he was concerned that you had plans for him yes he's written this document of how to run a competition successfully replace him
1: yeah i'll replace him with a robot come on google (laughs) what are you doing Uh, alexa run me a competition um we're not quite there yet but who knows um no john john is uh one of a kind and um he he does a fantastic job running the events having good quality events is so important to getting kids continuing in the sport and students and then adults. If you go to your first competition and it's rubbish and hours long and expensive and you don't fence anyone and you have an awful experience, you literally will just not do that again. And then as soon as you stop competing, you're going to lose that drive to try and progress in the sport And you're going to move on to badminton, piano playing, whatever it is. And we have to, as a sport, make the competitions better for youth, especially, I believe. Um, And I think that goes right from the FIE to everyone. It's all very well to make people that are very good at fencing at the Olympics. But that isn't necessarily the most fun style of fencing for kids it might work well for a high elite sport but it doesn't work for everyone if you take football for example you don't get tiny little kids and shove them on a full size pitch with full size goals and then say run around for 90 minutes and bang in some goals they're not big enough they can't do it so you need smaller pitches smaller balls more fun times um, and we need to sort of look again and we always just copy the same style of fencing as they kind of do at the Olympics Mm. or at world championships and I think we need to develop a system that is more fun for kids to be able to come along, fence competitively, but not in a stressful or long-hour, strange environment. Something that is actually just generally fun. Ask the kids what they want and then deliver it and then slowly progress to something that is harder, more challenging, more physically demanding. Yeah. But I think that is one of the things that we will start doing next, you know, over the next couple of years with our Leon Paul Jr. series right. to try and see and make a product that kids want and the parents want which hopefully then can make more fences and make a, a make better fences in the future.
0: Yeah, oh, that sounds a great plan. Wow. You mentioned that the uh, ground floor here at Leopold Centre is your your warehousing. You also have another. You always have another unit in, the, in this industrial estate yep. where you're
1: manufacturing done. Yes. Uh, so we've always manufactured in London. We were very central London in Neal Street, which is like a very famous area in um, in Covent Garden now, and we had a little shop there. And I think that shop now is worth £7 million. <laughs> so if we had, if we just bought that shop and just stayed where we were, just rented it out, we would have probably made more, more money than doing fencing. But anyway, uh, we then moved to Hoban, then out to Cam- Camden. Um, and now we're in Hendon, which is kind of fairly north London. Um, and that's just as rental costs have gone up. But one of the nice things about London is very creative, great people to work with, and we've got about 50 staff. We don't have a high turnover of staff. People tend to come and stay. People talk about job for life being a thing of the past, but I don't feel that here. The people, for example, making our masks, I've known them since I was maybe sixteen years old. I'm now forty-seven, uh, no, thirty-seven. God, I'm on the forty-seven. I just <laughs> lost ten years. Thirty-seven. I've known them, you know, almost my, my kind of entire life, and they're still still here producing mass, producing the best mass. And we're trying to sort of create a family business with people that can come. And have a career their whole their whole time um, their whole life and sort of develop within the business and part of having it in, in London in in one place and not producing our masks where it's cheap labor you know producing it you know the masks in wherever it's cheapest at the moment and our blades wherever it's cheap and our clothing here we end up with better quality control better consistency and people that are bought into the business so that they they care about it. And I think overall, that is better for us, certainly, than just having the cheapest possible product available. It's kind of more than that. Um, and that's why we're still based in London. Excellent. Well,
0: Ben, thank you very much indeed for uh, being my host for the day, allowing me to use your, your lovely facilities and great to talk to you again yeah great you're
1: more than welcome any time, and i hope to see you hopefully uh, at one of the next events we'll do one of our little quick spot interviews again
0: excellent i look forward to that Thank thanks very again much. hi john welcome to the fencing podcast hey sean sure? well i'm gonna start with the, the easy question that i ask everyone tell me how you started fencing
2: i started fencing at 12 years of age at my school and a gentleman named bob mary who was retired from the air force and uh granada television who was also a fencing coach he came around all the local schools in the stop area and it was very simple it was a, a pounder session for one hour on a friday night
0: after school it sounds irresistible
2: well it was for about 30 kids who did the first session after about four sessions we we're down to the hardcore three or four who it's, stayed yeah. on for the term but it was, it was quite a nice little group and we obviously you learn quicker in a group of three or four than you do in a group of 30 yeah
0: absolutely lots of lots of attention
2: so w- when did you meet the
0: the jump into competing you're an early competitor and
2: um we started off by doing something called the um Northwest Junior Series which was a non-electric um steam foil competition with judges so you have your four judges in the yeah. corner and at the time a president and stuff and then these crazy competitions that went on all day and you had very few fights and that was my initial <laughs> um initial uh, jaunt into competition and I quite liked it because um I think I had a little bit of success early because I think I've been doing it a bit longer than the other kids doing the competitions <laughs> and um once you win something, you want more of that. Yeah. So that's, that's how I started fencing. And then um, when I was 15, I decided to do a bit of epee, just randomly. i just picked up the epee and did a an under 16 competition. And I think there's only about seven kids in it. And I won that. And then I decided, because obviously I liked I like the feeling of winning. Yeah, this is the weapon for me.
0: So a bit of early reward
2: shapes your career. Exactly. I do think a bit of a, a bit of success goes a long way into uh, hooking a kid onto a sport.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. So at, at what point did you get serious as a, as an epiest? If you only made the switch at fifteen, which is I mean, this is probably considered quite quite late.
2: Um, almost straight away. I was kind of I, I really like sport. My dad was sport mad. He played rugby to a decentness level. Um, I'm too small to play rugby. And um, even now, actually, I look into his eyes of disappointment when um, <laughs> he looks at me and he goes, yeah, oh. "I played rugby, son, and you dress up in tight white clothing poking other <laughs> men with sticks." But um, so I became offensive. I was—I played all the sports at school, um, but fencing because there are fewer fences, you get more success early. Mm. So even though I was only 15, I think I did my first junior world cup when I was on my 16th birthday. Right. So I'd say I was relatively serious without being what I term like a proper fencer.
0: Mm. Uh, sorry, at what point then did you think, well, I need to take this seriously? Because uh, when I first met you, you, well, actually, you reminded me earlier today that, you know, we we actually met on the piste when you were very, very young, which I don't remember. But I think I first bumped into you at a junior world. So you'd probably been about 17 at the time, I think, 17, 18, perhaps.
2: Yes, that's fine. Oh, I, I remember clearly because um, it was my first big senior competition. Um, I'd done the Merseyside Open. I made the top eight in that. And um, again, without really knowing what I was doing. And then at that point, another coach came to me and said, um, you know, I think you've got a bit about you. Would you like to move to, from Bram Hall and Stockport Youth Swords Club to Stockport Senior Sword Club and I'll coach you. And the two coaches knew each other. it wasn't wasn't stealing yeah. me. and <laughs> um, Yeah, he wasn't poaching me at all. Now they knew each other and, he, and Bob quite happily passed me over to Andy. Um, but I think we met at the Birmingham International um, and I remember we met, met in a pool and... Um, I don't think I won, but I didn't win many that day. So uh, <laughs> I was quite, quite. I think I was. Was I fifteen or sixty? I was. I was a young man. So uh, I think. Yeah, I think the age and treachery beat youth and
0: enthusiasm that day, Sean. <laughs> Thanks. High. Well, less high an age at that point. It's certainly, certainly pretty treacherous. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, a, a, a decent junior career. That'd be a fair description.
2: Uh, it depends how you rank it. I at the time I would have said yes. Looking back. I say no. I mean, yes, I won some British titles and I was British number one, but I only actually made one Junior World last eight, mm. and my best resort at a Junior World Championships was a sixty-four. I mean, the joke is, I tell people at my, I went to my first Cadet World Championships and finished fifth from last. You know, so um, <laughs> I don't think I had an exception. In fact, I probably had a below-average junior career, and also even into my early twenties, I was very much what I consider a journeyman fencer. I would, I finished my university degree. Um, i went to be a trainee accountant and i was i was fencing for fun i was taking it seriously i was still training like once twice a day kind of thing mm-hmm. but i wasn't actually a professional athlete um and it wasn't really until the funding came in to um i think it was 2006 it was then i was i was thinking about it before because i was getting a bit bored of being a journeyman but i wasn't getting any major results until the m um, for funding came in in 2006 for the british athletes
0: yeah and you should commit to it full-time
2: yeah i just taken a job of being cute I, the story goes. I always wanted to be a full-time athlete. Again, I saw the Seoul Olympics when I was on on TV when I was young, and I thought I want to do that. I want to go to the Olympic Games, and I didn't have any clue how to do it because I wasn't I wasn't good at anything apart from fencing, and I never even put two and two together that oh, I could be an Olympic fencer. Yeah. <laughs> so, because I, I, obviously I was, I was I was British champion, but I never thought I like be an Olympic standard. Yeah. So I was I was going through it, and then B and Q, the DIY company, where I had a job for aspiring athletes where you work. Um, Twelve hours a week or sixteen hours a week, but mm-hmm. they pay you full time. Yeah. So that was that. That was when I made the switch to being a full time athlete. Um, I said, I said to my dad when I was young, I said I want to be a full time fencer, and he said, Not on your life, son. You're going to be a, you know, you're going to get, get yourself yeah. a proper job. And I said, But, but I want to be a full time athlete. And he goes, Yeah, but you've got to do your A levels. I mm-hmm. said, But you didn't do your A levels, Dad. Yeah. And he's like, But I'm a postman, son. Do you want to be a postman? Mm-hmm. And at the time, early mornings were not my thing, so yeah. absolutely not a <laughs> postman. I said, No, Dad. and He goes, Right, go and do your A levels. So I did my A levels. I'm not going to lie, Sean didn't do very well. And then um, I said, "Right, I'm, I've done my A levels. Can I get be a full time athlete?" He said, "Absolutely not. You need a, you needed a degree." I said, "But Dad, you've not got a degree." And he goes, two years ago, son, do you want to be a postman?" I'm like, "No, Dad." And he goes, "Right, go and be, so I did an engineering degree, and I, I didn't like engineering. I didn't get on with it. I got myself a two one, but I wasn't particularly enjoying the um, the, 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 the learning. So I thought, finish my degree, got my two one. I thought that'll be enough now. So twenty one years old, said, "Right, Dad." Can I be a full-time athlete? I'm still 21 and do as I'm told. And he goes, absolutely not, son. You need a professional qualification. I said, oh, well, what's one of them? And he goes, oh, be an accountant. I said, are you for real? He goes, yeah, go and be an accountant. So I got a trainee accountant's position. And then at 23, I qualified to be an accountant. And um, I said to him, dad, I'm 23, still living at home. I'm a good boy. He goes, do you want to? can I be a full-time athlete? And he goes, yeah, if you want.
0: <laughs> Finally. And I'm
2: like, oh, yes. And the very next day I handed in my resignation at work and, um, became a full-time fencer at 24 years of age.
0: Right. <laughs> and, um, it sounds like you were quite looking forward to making that transition from being a student full-time, uh, you know, proper job person to, to yeah. being a full-time athlete.
2: I, I just, I love sport. I love physical exercise. I love fencing. I still love fencing now that I've been retired many years. But um I, there was I just there is no money in it, or at least there wasn't any money in it back in the day. And even the top fencers in the world now, I mean the really top fencers like Richard and Marcialis, they find it hard to make a living. Yeah. And for someone who was like considered myself like a journeyman fencer, you know, it was it was going to be impossible. My dad, I'll never tell him this. He was absolutely spot on. Because the job I've got now is based on my accountancy and engineering. It's not based on being a fencer. Anyone could do my job, it just helps. I was a fencer. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah. So um yeah, he was absolutely spot on. But yeah, I wanted to be a full-time athlete. And I spent seven years doing it, traveling the world, living in different countries. It was, you know, wouldn't swap it for anything. Would never go back to being an accountant. You know, I've seen too much, Sean. You can't make me go back. I've seen the world now.
0: <laughs> okay, I'm not trying to persuade you to resume your accountancy your career. In that case, Sean, you've uh, you persuaded me, even if your dad was a, a, harder, a harder task. Um, now, I know you don't like to talk about it, but you are the last... British men's FPFs to win a World Cup. You won. You he won Heidenheim, uh, the, the biggest FPF tournament well, you, you, in you, the world. You, you, so I'm going to force it out of you. Tell
2: us about that, day Well, you're quite right, Sean. As all my friends know I don't like to talk about it. However, I will for uh, for this. Um, again, with the funding had just started. We had. Um, we were full time. I was still living in Manchester, um, training with my old sword club at Stockport, which wasn't very high level. I was doing a lot of physical work in the gym, the IS, with my coach at the time, Matt Cook. And I was actually training with the British squash team. So I was doing some some really good fitness work. And I was the most unfittest person in that circuit session because yeah. the squash players can really shift. But it was good for me. It was always good to be, not, not be the best. It's good mm. to obviously train with people better than you. So that was good. And then we went to a training camp in Germany um, for a week in Heidenheim. And they invited us out there. We went out there for a week. And I had a decent training camp, but didn't, again, didn't think anything of it. I was just a, you know, my target was always to make the last 64. And then if you make the last 64, see what you can do. Yeah, but, a chance. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, You've got to be in it to win it, as they say. And um, we started fencing in Heidenheim and um, I think I was 3-3 three three in the pool. Mm-hmm. Not, I mean, it was all right. It was mid-table respectability, as I call it. i yeah. made the cut and then I was quite happy with it. I wasn't seeded to win my first DE fight. Yeah. And I, was, I remember I was fencing a Swiss fencer who was a Swiss pommeler and I, I know, I know him really well, obviously. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he's a good guy. And um, I, I beat him. And he was probably, we were about 50-50. Sometimes he beat me, sometimes mm-hmm. I beat him. And I beat him. And then next I had one of the um, the Ambrose brothers. The, they're identical twins. Yeah. And you never know which one was which until you fenced him. And one was really attacking and one was really defensive. And I think I drew the really defensive one because he didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And I find it hard to fence defensive fences. And I was losing by quite a bit. And I thought, oh, you know, I might as well go for it. Because if mm-hmm. I don't... If, i'm gonna lose if i carry on so i went for it and i did a few crazy moves i ran him a few times a few stupid flicks to back and stuff and i, I beat him when i'm into the 64 and i thought job done i'm in the 64 this is great um looked at the draw got Matteo tagli tomorrow morning so no pressure here <laughs> 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 that boy can fence yeah so uh, what he's doing. <laughs> i went to bed happy thinking here we go 64 time anyway came the next day and we are fencing downstairs, as opposed to one of the four main pieces of stairs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that helped a little bit because it was a little—the mood was a little bit more somber downstairs. There was yeah. no crowd, and I think Matthew was on his own, maybe one coach, nothing really. And I was fencing and fencing and fencing in. It was all—it's all very nip and tuck until the very end. I got about fourteen thirteen up, and I thought to myself, I can, "Oh my word, I can—I can do this. I'm fourteen thirteen up. All I need is one more hit." So I did what every épéeist does, and they will never admit to doing. Went for a double. <laughs> and what you should never do in Epe is go for a double. Yep. So he did a neat parry post. It's now 14 <laughs> all. And then I'm fencing and I'm thinking, oh, God, John, you've messed yes, this yeah. right up. You could have beaten Matteo Tagliarol. Anyway, so I'm fencing, fencing, fencing. And I, he stepped in. I went for an, uh, just a, an attack into preparation. He did an octave parry and he messed it up. He didn't quite clear the blade. And he half caught it. And it, instead of it hitting him in the middle of his chest, it kind of got dragged down onto his front leg. And somehow I, I beat him 15-14. Yeah. He was a bit annoyed, but still a gentleman, shut my hand. And then um, we're into the last 32. And I thought, well, this this weekend's got a lot better already. Is, yeah. And I look at the draw and sometimes you look at a draw and you think, oh, I wish I had that person. Hmm. And I think I did. <laughs> I, think, I think I was the weakest person in the 32. And I had the second weakest person in the 32. And I thought, well, that's all. It D- let, D- going well. Yeah, let's yeah. not mess this up. And I think after about a couple of periods, I was Four three up, four two up. Basically, because mm. I thought I'm not going to mess this up. I've got a really good draw, nothing flamboyant. Mm. And I think I ended up winning quite comfortably in the thirty two, and I'm into the sixteen. Now, the first of four Frenchmen. So I, I come up against Matthew Denny, and Matthew Denny would had won the first Junior World Cup I entered. So I entered Budapest as a sixteen year old and finished eleventh from last. Yeah, and he won it. So um, I knew. So he's I don't want to say he's a hero of mine, but obviously oh. he, he won the first World Cup yeah, I he we'll did impression early. Yeah. So absolutely. So um, we're fencing away and he's doing quite well. And then um, I just noticed a little bit of a, he kind of, he's a strange epist. He can hide his entire body behind his guard. <laughs> it's a unique French skill I find with yeah. Pommelas. Uh, but he wasn't quite doing it right. And I could see a little bit of his top shoulder. And it, I thought, as he comes in, I've got a free shot at his shoulder. Hmm. And if I, if I hit him, that's like, before he can get to me, I get a shot on him. And I did this. About three or four hits in a row, and he never picked up on it, right. and I ended up from going from behind to being comfortable in the lead and winning—not not comfortably, comfortably, but I always felt in control. Yeah. And to this day, I've never told him, "Oh, Matt, you've got you dropping your hand and showing yeah. your shoulder just,
0: <laughs> just in case I have
2: to some of just... the veterans or anything like that." Because <laughs> yeah. that's a nice
0: little little trick I found against. Oh, everybody's going to you know
2: now. Oh no, <laughs> so, <laughs> giving it away. <laughs> well, I think he's very retired. I saw Matthew Denny recently. I think he's very retired as well. So we're we're both both happy. Um, then quarterfinals against um, Grumier. And Grumier is one of the best fences I've ever fenced in my life.
0: Hmm.
2: And I would say this was a quarter final against one of the best fences in the world, and I fenced my perfect fight. Right. Genuinely, I don't think I could have fenced this any better. I gave away one point by mistake, but I won 15-14 hmm. and I made one mistake. <laughs> that shows and he obviously had a bad day because he lost <laughs> he lost to me. But sh- that shows the difference between the two of us, how good he was and hmm. how not good I was at the time. And like I said, my perfect fight, I won 15-14. And um, jobs are good. i now in, I'm into the semi-final. Yeah. So I'm half the GB team now have gone home because, as you know, Sean, if you're a Great Britain fencer, you don't book to make the final at <laughs> yeah, senior World Cup level. Not in the FA team anyway. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> so half the team had gone home. So it's just me and a few boys who were staying to the team event the next day. And I've got um, Francisco Jan or Jan from mm. France, a left-handed pommeler. Can't remember anything of this fight because it was just the, the actual the emotion and the, the occasion just overwhelmed me. All I can remember is being presented on the piece and the Germans being so polite because I had no <laughs> results to speak of, they didn't do any results for anybody because uh. they could have got. I was Robieri, Rota, Jan and myself. Like, three guys who'd, like, made the back end of World Cups <laughs> more times than not. Uh-huh. And there's me, who'd won the Shropshire Open seven times. You <laughs> I, know, was, so. I, would lo- I would love if they'd announced
0: that as your,
2: well, your so, big result. so would I, and so <laughs> would the Cowans. But, uh, it's, <laughs> but they, they so the Germans, being very kind, they announced nothing. So And I remember fencing the fight, and again, I've, I won by one or two hits. I don't remember much of it. There's a few photographs, but I can't really... I can just remember the emotion. I can't remember anything of the fight. Yeah. And then, the, finally, the final against... Um, or Rick Robbieri mm. and um, this fight I do remember because it was like i kind of calmed down a little bit now. I was fencing in the final of the World Cup, I was, enjo- I was actually enjoying it. Yeah, and my, my tactic going into the fight was don't get smashed. <laughs> how, many, how many times have you seen a lesser fencer get into the final mm. of the World Cup and then to take a 15 4 drubbing? Yeah, I thought no, don't get smashed. Just still be, be that guy, yeah. yeah, don't be that guy. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm fencing and I'm, I'm doing all right, but I'm, I'm losing 9 6. I think it's 9 6. No, 11, sorry, my apologies, 11 6. Right. and um, I thought well I'm going to lose this if I carry on doing this he's going to pick me off all day long there's nothing I can do I've got two options I can go for it and do something stupid or I can just carry on fencing as I'm doing I thought well I might never make another World Cup final mm. so I thought let's go for it and it was 9-6 and I ran forward and he stuck his arm out so on guard ready play ran two steps forward he stuck his arm out I took a big beat in octave and then flicked him on his back crowd loved it Yeah, everyone was like oh, wow what's this crazy guy doing <laughs> But what that did was Robieri never stuck his arm out again right. in the rest of the fight. So he's a pommel. He's a very good pommel. Yeah. Went on to be world champion. He never stuck his arm out. Well, he's taken away his biggest asset, yeah. his reach. And from that point on, I was just harrying him in and out. And there's some video footage of the last four hits. And that's all the video footage I've got. And it's just me being crazy epic, running up and down, trying to like draw his arm out Take the blade, flick, horrible counter. Oh, it's just not very good fencing. So everyone thinks I fenced like an idiot, and I maintain to this day I fenced really nicely that day. But there's no evidence of this. There's only evidence of me running up and down, looking like an idiot. So um, I actually scored nine hits in a row in 42 seconds. So I went from 11-6 down to winning 15-11. Yeah. And that was And that was just like that was the moment, if that makes sense. And that 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 was a turning point in my career. Yeah. Uh, to win that one, and I always maintain if you're going to have a lucky day, Sean. Have it at the biggest competition Absolutely. in the world. Absolutely, yeah. You no, know, so I just picked the right day to have a have a good one.
0: Yeah. Yeah, an amazing day. An amazing day. Um, uh, not your only World Cup win though. Um probably one that's less celebrated um in <laughs> 2010 yeah. or a, a win at, a win in Iran. Yeah, well, well you know me, Sean. I ever like to go all in or all
2: out. So mm. I've won the biggest World Cup and I've won the smallest World Cup. <laughs> you know, I don't care about the ones in between. We're only we're extremes. So um I had I am um, I had a hip operation, a hip reconstruction in 2009. I was training. I was doing some work in the gym, doing some change of direction exercises and my hip went pop. Mm. And it took him a couple of months to work out what I'd done because I'd had a few steroid injections in there and this, that and the other. And I tried some different things and strappings and stuff and nothing was helping. So eventually I got a um, quite painful um, MRI scan where they inject the the joint with some dye and they put you in an MRI scan. It's quite unpleasant. um, And the doctor saw it and said, yeah, you've torn your hip labrum, the cartilage around the hip. And he goes, does it matter? Does it not matter? It will never get better on its own. It might get better. It might get worse. Anyway, it basically meant I couldn't be an athlete anymore. My, you know, It was too painful. It was actually painful to walk for more than 15 minutes. So I couldn't really do any training. So I thought, well, I might as well get the operation done. And the doctor I saw was actually he's one of the world-leading specialists in um, hip arthroscopy. And um, he said, 80% success rate. So for five, one in five chance, you might never fence again. Mm. So... Went for my dad to advice. <laughs> he said, I said, what shall I do, dad? He goes, well, make sure you get yourself on some kind of course just in case it doesn't work. <laughs> so I went to apply to be a, a physics teacher. So I got, um, I got my place at Manchester University and um, PGC course just in case the operation didn't work. <laughs> and then um, I went for my operation in London. And there was myself and two premiership footballers turned up that day for the right. same operation guess it was third.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. you would not be front of the list, I No, I was, to... I was
2: third on the list and I had to stay overnight, but it was fine. It was in the Wellington overlooking the Lord's Cricket Ground. Very nice, Sean, I'm not going to lie.
0: Yeah. Breakfast was superb.
2: <laughs> so um, anyway, um, the operation went really well, but I couldn't walk for a couple of weeks and then I had to do a rehab and no fencing. I didn't actually fence again until five months after my operation, which was actually one month ahead of time, but I had a really nice rehab, which is the benefit of being a full-time athlete. I didn't yeah. have to work. When the doctor said to me, lie on your bed for three weeks, don't even stand on it. Hmm. I'm like, well, game on. Yep. So <laughs> I did nothing for three, months, for three weeks. Sorry, then I did all the rehab and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, so I had a good rehab. But I, I was, I'd was, i missed the um, Europeans. I went, I went to, just before the operation and I was still injured. I went to Sydney and picked up a silver. Then I went to Montreal and got a last 16. So I had a good chunk of points at the end of the season. Yeah. But I missed the Europeans, missed the Worlds. And I thought, well, I'm going to start next season – on the back foot really. Mm. But the first competition of the season is in Kish Island in Iran and no one really goes to it. Yeah. I could go there, get a cheeky last date, 14 World Cup points and that kind of tides me over in the next couple of World Cups where I won't do so well because yeah. I'm not up to speed.
0: Yeah, cause it's a slightly different time as well. It's more World Cups thing. Yes, yeah, so I think a the, bigger circuit. It was,
2: it was intermediate. It wasn't quite the time of like when it was 20, 20 plus. I think yeah. it was 15, I think it was, it was eight now. So yeah. i really cut it down. So, this, so there were like weaker World Cups so i thought i'll go there so um myself an irish my irish friend and an australian friend decided we're all game for this so we um we all met up in um uh, the i think it's dubai you fly to dubai and then you pay cash for a flight from dubai to kish island so the three of us met up in dubai got on the um got a taxi to terminal one and two crazy they can't link their terminals but we got a taxi to the second terminal paid cash for a flight I swear, I'm not joking, there were people standing on this flight. <laughs> and I'm sure someone fell off the wing. But anyway, that's not, not neither here nor there. So we we land in Kish Island. And um, I always find that if you have to tell someone about a place, it's not always true. So, for example, the Democratic Republic of Congo mm. might not be the most democratic of places. Possibly not. No. The beautiful island of Kish, I'll leave it there. <laughs> so we landed, we landed in Kish Island and went oh. through the airport. And then uh, my Irish friend handed over his passport. Gentleman stacked it in you go. Australian friend handed over his passport, stamped it, in you go. I handed over my British passport in Iran. Mm-hmm. And this is, about, this is about a month after we had the, this, the incident where the British Navy sailors in the dinghy had been taken hostage and paraded on TV. I about that. So is. Anglo-Iranian relations were not great. A little strained at that stage. Yeah. So um, they took the passport and they took it off me and they go, wait over there. And I'm like, <laughs> and I did my best you grant and said, uh, mm, sorry, sir, sorry. He goes, wait over there. Oh, crumbs. Now, <laughs> My dad, who you can see features a lot in my my life advice. Big
0: influence. Yeah.
2: um, He's always said to me, he gave me a credit card when I started traveling the world and a passport. He goes, keep these two things safe and whatever happens, you can get home and we'll sort out any problems after that. Mm -hmm. So I thought, oh, crumbs, I've still got my credit card, but can I have my passport back? No. Wait over there. My have crumbs. So I'm sat sat there. My Australian friend and Irish friend find this hilarious. <laughs> of course. They're loving the fact they're on the other they're side we- of the wall. weaving
0: to you from the other side. Literally. Yeah. The,
2: at least they pulled my bag off the carousel. Do you know what I <laughs> oh, mean? We, well, not, tell you about yeah, <laughs> Exactly. And then these two gentlemen came out. Big lads. Um, machine guns. Fantastic moustaches. I'm not going to lie. They were proper jobs. Buried on one side. And then um, they said something to me in um, Farsi, I think they speak or their language. And I'm like, and I, again, I did my Hugh Grant impression. I I'm, I'm awfully sorry. Um, what did you say? And he put his gun, he pointed it at me and, and flipped it and goes, this way. At which point, Sean, I filled my pants with a mixture of wee and farts and, and um, <laughs> did exactly as I was told. <laughs> Very wise. And I, I went into a, a small office, about half for those listening at home, about half the size of our current office that are in now. <laughs> and um, they talked to each other for a minute. Then one looked at me and said, why are you here? And I said, oh, I'm here for a fencing tournament. And again, they confirmed amongst themselves and said, "Why are you here?" And I thought, "Oh crumbs, maybe they don't speak English." I'll try fencing in every language I know. Hmm. So fencing, fechten, uh, swords, and I made the international sign for fencing, which is waving your finger at someone in, in a jabby action. Oh, dear. Again, didn't go well. Not mm-hmm. going to lie. Mm-hmm. And they were, and they're like, "Why are you here?" I thought, oh no, I'm going basically. <laughs> I'm going to run it if we try and explain this. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to die here. Is this? <laughs> Is fourteen World Cup points worth this? <laughs> worth my life? It may have not weed up the options. I, anyway, I will. At, at this point when I thought I was about to die, um, in walked this um, this woman, and um, the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. in jeans, high heels, just absolutely stunning. Literally saved my life. She goes, "I'm so sorry, Mr. Willis. Um, I'm the Iranian fencing delegate looking after the accommodation." Anyway, and she, goes, "I'll sort this out." And she she looked at the first man, and started screaming and shouting at him. Looked at the second man and started screaming and shouting at him and I'm like, Yeah, you tell him, sister. Yeah, you tell him. (laughs)
0: I'm right behind you. And yeah.
2: But then I thought, Maybe but is she on my side? Is she saying, I told you, he's only British, shoot him and bury the body (laughs) Apple. So, and now I'm a little bit worried again. I thought, well, be careful, love. You know, they've got yeah. a couple of machine guns yeah. here. Let's don't, not make them too don't, angry. Don't annoy them, yeah. Luckily, she was basically, she got me out of there and she pulled me off and we went back to the hotel. My Irish and um, Australian friend, again, I think they they were crying with laughter <laughs> at this. And it was um, the most single most terrifying experience of my life. But all went well. Got a bye to the second day. Actually, a bye to the 32. That's how big the World Cup was. Oh, okay. There's only yes. 60 people in it. And I managed to somehow win the World Cup and I beat an Iranian guy in the final. Every time he scored a hit, the crowd went mad. Every time I scored a hit, I scored a hit. It was deadly silence. At one point, I even see some tumbleweed blow across the piece. <laughs> but um, I managed to get out of there alive. Um, then the very final thing, they they gave us our prizes, stood on the podium, um, gave us a bunch of flowers. And I'm, I'm about to fly back home, so I don't really want a bunch of flowers. And there were some some girls had been doing some dancing between the semi-finals mm-hmm. and the final, and the Three girls were walking – as I was walking out of my fencing bank, there were three girls. There was like a tiny one, a medium one, and a big one.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I thought, Let's, let me help Anglo-Iranian relations here. And I gave the smallest girl my bunch of flowers. And I said, there you go. You can have those. Anyway, the big girl then snatched them off her. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and this little girl looked at me with like a tear in her eye in the kind of thing, Sean, that says, you gave me these flowers as an act of peace between our two, between our two great nations she's just stolen them from me what are you going to do about it and i did sean what any man would do in that position you left i ran yeah well done <laughs> yeah got on the bus and got out of the country oh my word what have, you, an experience. Have, have you been back no luckily they cancelled the world cup oh, so i didn't what have to shame. go
0: what a shame. Um,
2: it was, it's an experience but I, I i won't be going to um iran anytime soon
0: no oh well uh, I'll I'll probably strike that one in from my, my list of potential holiday destinations. <laughs> but uh, you know, thanks thanks for the insight into your your World Cup winning trip to Iran. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tremendous story. Um you mentioned a training camp in in Heidenheim uh, before your your win there, uh and ultimately ended up training full time in Germany. Tell me well, a, how that came about and and how you found it. Um after, after I I was obviously well-known in Heidenheim. after that.
2: You know, the British guy came and won the competition. And I was looking for somewhere to train. I was British – I've been British number one. I was British number one by a long way. I had no one to train with in Stockport. We weren't – didn't have enough money for me to move to London, even though there wasn't that many fences in London who I could have trained with anyway. Um, And Heidenheim came and said to me, they said, we've got a – We've got a young German team, a young bunch of juniors who are good, but we've got no one older. Like Fabian Schmidt, they've all retired and moved on. We've got mm. no one of your age. Would you like to come to Germany? Train with our guys, teach them what they know, and in return, obviously, you'll get some better sparring and you can be part of the club here. And I thought, yes, absolutely. So as soon as I got my hip injury sorted out and I said, I'm fit, they said, yeah, come on over. So I lived in Germany for three years and um, I really I really enjoyed it. Um, I learned to speak really bad German. And all my German friends mocked me because I, I spoke baby Deutsch. Yeah, <laughs> Though I must admit, my fencing chat is amazing in German. Just don't, just don't ask me for any like very, like- very specialist specialist language skills. Exactly. Just don't ask me to talk about the weather or any like, you know, political um, debate. But yeah, yeah I, I know all the fencing words. And um, I had a really good time out there. I made a lot of friends and um, I had a few different housemates. I lived with Stefan Ryan in the end. I lived with Max Keck. Um, for the first three months out there, I was living in the nurse's accommodation in a hospital, which again, was all right. <laughs> so um but no it's really good and the germans bought into me the only problem i had was their specialist disc was, dish was spargel which is white asparagus and i, I can't stand white asparagus <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with just about everything else to eat but that's not my thing but they it's like their special dish and all the families wanted me to go around to their house just talk to their young kids in english to help them with their english and okay. so for the first three months about once a week i'd go around to one of the, the family's house and they're like Oh, John! It is so good to have you come round. Um, we've cooked our speciality for you. Yeah. Oh,
0: really, you shouldn't have. <laughs> no, really, you shouldn't have.
2: Yeah. But um, I, I honestly, I felt, I felt Germany's being home. And yeah. I, I, I had this conversation with someone at the weekend about. It took me six months moving back to the UK to think of England as home again, hmm. and I really miss it. And uh, the whole 2012 debacle. I fell out of like love with fencing for a brief period, and but I think in. If I hadn't have done, maybe I would have stayed there. Maybe I could be living in Germany now because I'm sure they would have offered me a coaching job.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, um, but yeah, it's um, I really did. I, I love the place. I've been back a few times since. I plan to go back in 2019 for the World Cup and the um, Coupe de Rock and the team event there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a fantastic place. I mean, proper summers, proper winters. Everyone's very friendly and a population around fifty thousand. Which is um
0: nice size
2: oh it's, it's fantastic I, re, I really enjoyed it and i I do consider it my second home and obviously all the the high club fence is my family
0: yeah. So, yeah yeah now you mentioned briefly there about the uh 2012 debacle um a lot of our listeners certainly British ones will be familiar with your struggles with the world class program um I'm not really quite sure what question to ask you here so I'm just going to kind of open the floor to you and see, uh, tell me about your experience of the world-class programme and the run-up to London Olympics. Um,
2: I'll be very careful because my lawyer's not present to mm. censor me. So um, I think 2012, I mean, that was six years ago now. Um, I've grown up a lot in six years. At the time, especially when the whole thing was unfolding, I was very, I, was, I was still 30, 31, which is still quite young for a guy, especially for an athlete. Um. I mean, emotionally, not obviously. You're getting towards the mm. actually <laughs> yeah. perfect age, but emotionally, I was very young, um, and I was a very angry young man. Is all I can say on the matter. Um, I've I've mellowed out a bit now. And looking back at it, um, the one thing that keeps me sane is, I was not good enough to qualify for the Olympic Games.
0: Mm.
2: We didn't have a team. Not, there's no team event anyway, so I had to do it individually. I wasn't good enough. If the the Olympics had been anywhere but London, I would not have gone. Being a European fencer. Yeah. So that said. We had wild cards. Yeah. I'd been British number one for eight years. I'd won two World Cups, a silver, last eight, sixteens. 16s. You know, I was a decent fencer. I mean, my, world, my highest world ranking was only ever 21, but I kicked around the top 50, top 80 for a couple of years. And I, I thought I'd, I don't want to talk about any other athletes who got wild cards, who didn't get wild cards. I thought I deserved one. I thought I was good enough out of the 12 wild cards. It was 12 or 8. I can't remember. We had enough wild cards, right. I thought, for me to get one. Yeah. And I didn't get one for whatever reason. Um, I don't know the motivations behind me not getting one. Um, I don't know if it's because I was living in Germany and training in Germany. I don't know if it's because EPE is not favoured at the time by the person running fencing. I genuinely don't know. And I've, I've ne- never got the answer to that question. Right. There were are, are legal things that went on, which I don't really want to talk about because I'll probably get slapped across the wrists by people. But. I don't think the process was entirely satisfactory, I think is a fair word. I think a lot of people to this day who um, some went, who some didn't go, don't know how how it happened. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But I was very upset. As you can, I literally threw my, no, I say literally, I I did. I threw my toys out of my pram. I gave my fencing kit away. I covered up the Jeep Willis GBR on the back of my jacket and gave it to some young up and coming fencers. Gave away my pays and stuff. I didn't keep anything. I kept a Great Britain tracksuit from 2000 and I think it was 2010, 2009. That's the only great. That's the last Great Britain tracksuit I kept. I binned all the others. Not interested. Um, genuinely, I think I fell out of love with the sport for a good six months. Mm-hmm. And um, but as I say, look back at it now. I didn't qualify. And as much as I, I'm, I'm still am angry that I didn't get a wild card. If you don't qualify. You're relying on someone doing you a favour, yeah. and the person in charge of British fencing at the time was not going to do me any favours. Yeah. So in that case, I didn't get to go to the Olympics. And and now there's no point crying about it. But it's the one thing as I said at the very start of when we started chatting, I wanted to go to an Olympic Games. Yeah. And that's the one thing on my list I've not done. And I I do feel my fencing career is a little bit empty. Because I overachieved. If someone said to me, Can you when I started fencing at the age of 15, 16, this will be your career, I would have snapped their hands off. Mm-hmm. 100%. I mean, double World Cup winner, um, Britain, multiple British champion, British number one for eight years, etc., etc. et cetera. But, I've not been to an Olympic Games. Yeah. And that's what I wanted. But, you live and learn, don't you? I think, mm-hmm. I think it's made me a, a stronger person because I think I worked out the seedings, actually, because um, you do that. When you, <laughs> I, I, I was a 50-50 chance. I would have got Giza Imre in the first round in London. Okay. And he absolutely owned me. Right. So <laughs> I, I would have probably been a British uh, first-round exit. Mm-hmm. So um, maybe I would have just been there for one fight. Who knows? Yeah. So, um, but, yeah, I would have liked to have gone.
0: Yeah, of course. Of course. Well, you, you talk about uh, your own time as a competitor. Uh, still heavily involved in the sport in a variety of rules. do you have a do you have a strong opinion on the way forward for British shaping because it's not had a huge amount of success in recent years is there something that we're missing
2: yeah um, I've tried my I, I still I work at Leon Paul for those people who don't know I, I run the Leon Paul fencing centre and um, Leon Paul sponsored me as an athlete then um, after I retired in 2012 I went off the rails a little bit moved back into my parents house at 31 32 years of age you know Life literally going, spiraling down, not being very clever at all. And then um, my mum was worried sick, bless her. And my dad, my dad's like, you've got an accountancy degree. Get out there. Count some numbers. <laughs> Do something. But um, no, I, was in, I was in a bad place. Um, and then out of the blue, Alex Paul phoned me up and he said, John, we're building a fencing centre. You lived in one in Germany. Can you help us out? So yeah. And I said, no problem. So I worked as a consultant for three months. And then um, after that three months, I said to him, okay, there's an elephant in the room, Alex. You need a fencing centre manager. I need the job. Let's talk salary, and let's not be. Let's talk big. Let's not be scared. Yeah, let's let's yeah. not scrimp on this. Yeah, exactly. So then, I'm, and then I moved down to London in 2013, and I've been here ever since. At which time, um, they allow me to do lots of things. So I run a lot of competitions for British fencing. I've tried my hand at helping out British épée as well, because obviously my passion is épée. And I think the problem is because it was so neglected in the build-up to 2012. Epe mm. was really, really badly really neglected. Um, We've fallen behind Foil and Sabre. Sabre got their act together. Sabre did really well, and um, they built a squad. They train together. They train hard, and they're getting some good results. The British Sabre team are moving up the rankings. They're going in the right way. Yeah. Foil, led by Richard Cruz, is doing really well. I mean, the, you've seen today the boys are here. They train every day. This, yeah. we, we have about eight or nine really dedicated British foilists who are putting in the effort, even though there's no money. Hmm. They come to Leon Paul every day, and um, they train here and they use the gym and stuff. So, you know, fair play to them. Epic. we don't have that. I don't upset too many people in EPE. I think a lot of the problem is we've accepted mediocrity. Since I retired, and there were a lot of retirees, it wasn't just me. There was Tom Bennett, James Taylor, Tom Cadman, um, James Thornton I can, I can I can list off even more fences who might not might be not well known, but we're a decent a decent bunch of EPEs who you know can yeah, have their a day. Good, a good squad. all of them could. That went. Perform. So if most of the top ten in Britain went places, mm. numbers eleven to twenty suddenly became the top ten. Yeah, but they didn't make them any better. Mm-hmm. So we started out. So our top 10 is made up of fencers who were below, who should be below 10 in the rankings. Yeah. So Epe got weaker in Britain. And then several generations passed. And by a fencing generation, I tend to call three years. I know it's not in seniors, it's, it's not, but if you think cadets ju- yeah. you know, cadets and then cadet to junior, that's a three year cycle. So we've been, since I've retired, we've been through two cadet cycles or two, free, two junior cycles mm-hmm. in Britain and had a little bit of success. Phil Marsh, yep. who won, was junior champion. Yeah, but, again, was treated pretty badly by the um, the person running British fencing at the time and has gone on to do nothing, which is a shame because the yeah. boy's got talent. Yeah, But apart from that, there's been no success. So now no excess- success in Epe is expected. And I'm scared that too many, especially parents, start the moaning of, oh, we're not helped. There's nothing for us. And I want to say to them, there was nothing for me back in the day. Before the, the 2012 project kicked in in 2006, there was no funding. There was no funding for anything, not even Richard Cruz. Yeah. I think we got about £40,000 a year as a sport. Mm. Yeah. you know There was small, nothing. Small numbers. There's no, there was been nothing for Sabre recently. They've gone out and done it themselves, yeah. either through private sponsors or just hard work and graft. And I think EPE need to appreciate this and actually start working hard rather than expect it to be given to them. We're not foil. We don't have a guy in the world top ten. We don't have guys who can even make the second day of a World Cup anymore. Senior World Cup. Yeah. Why should we get any funding? And the only way we're going to do this is by hard work, graft, and a bit of dedication. And I think that's lacking in Brit Sheppe. There's talent there, mm-hmm. undoubtedly. There's talent there. You know, we don't we don't go from being good at juniors, good at cadets, to being rubbish at seniors. We just kind of fall off the curve. Yeah. So um, there needs to be a, I think, a step change in attitude in British Epic, rather than waiting for someone to do it for you, I think a group of athletes will have to do it for themselves and then
0: the funding
2: and the help will follow.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you mentioned your... Oh, sorry. Gav and I talk about EPI a fair bit on the podcast and Gav does most, most of the EPI watching these days. I'm a I kind of drop in and out and I, I will confess that I am Reasonably quick to criticise Epi when it's a bit dull. Um, the FIE clearly seems to think there are some problems as well. They had a, a raft of proposals uh, that went before the FIE Congress last year. What's your feeling about the state of Epi? Does it need fixed in the way that the FIE proposed?
2: I don't believe it does. I mean, Epi is Epi. Um, if, you watch, um, if you watch a football match, like a league match can be exciting and, you know, end-to-end football. If you watch the FA Cup final, and I'm sadly... I went to the FA Cup final this year. Inful. I'm a Manchester United supporter and um, my boss, who's a season ticket holder at Chelsea, got me some tickets, so I sat in the wrong end for a start. But we both agreed it was one of the most boring matches of football ever. Yeah. So, but are we going to change the rules of football to make it more exciting? Mm. We're not. You know, because you, you you get other football matches, which are great. Yeah. And it's the same in fencing. Some You know, sometimes winning, especially towards the back end of the competition is more important than looking good.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And some
2: fences will grind out a result because you need to grind out a result. It's, it's a results-based industry. Yeah. So I appreciate that it might be boring sometimes, but, but other times it won't be. And if I hear people say, oh, let's just have the extra minute <laughs> when the fences go mad. But that, that extra minute is so important because you've had the nine boring minutes before or the free passivity periods before. Yeah. That. So I don't think the changes they're implementing about, um, Almost like advantages when you can hit when you can. I just don't think you change it. Um, and shortening pool fights to two minutes. I've heard that one, and mm. um, will make it even more boring because yeah. you've got less. If you go behind, you've got less time to bring it back. Yeah. I, I don't think EPE is particularly broken. It's certainly a lot more interesting now than when I did it because right. there was no there was no such thing as non-combactivity yeah, in my day. Indeed, yeah. And um, that used to help me. I used to be a boring fencer because I was relatively fit because I cha- trained with the British squash team. I'd wear someone out for two periods before I beat them in the third period. Yes, yeah. Now, if I try that tactic, after one minute, they're like, nope, next period. Forwards, like, yeah. Well, so, yeah. <laughs> I've got loads of energy left. I can, I've can. i got energy to
0: burn. I've got no ability. <laughs> yeah. I, want to, I want to run these guys off and do for another, exactly. another just, six minutes.
2: It was only the technique that I was lacking. <laughs> so... um, uh, Yes, I don't think... There might be some tweaks you can do here and there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But I think fashion and the way people fence, like Max Heinzer. Yeah. I mean, has anyone been bored watching Max Heinzer fence? No, I don't think there is. As, but then has anyone been excited watching some of the Pommelers fence? No, because they're boring. <laughs> but they, they're really efficient and they win really well. Yeah, But I don't know. What do you want in a sport? Do you want an do you want a entertainment package mm. like WWE wrestling? Or do you want a sport where the idea is to win? Yeah. And I'm a little bit. I I'm a traditionalist. I want the sport to win, yeah. and I'm willing to watch a boring Epe match if there's or two boring Epe matches if there's one good one. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm a purist. I'm afraid. I'm rather than a you don't maybe tweak one or two things, small small tweaks, but that's about it. Really, I think it's, it's not far off. Really, I don't think how you can improve it without making it artificially a different sport. Yeah. I mean, as soon as, soon as you take the pool fights down to two minutes. They'll all go to time. Yeah. At the minute now, you know, I used to I, I used to be able to lose a pool fight in one and a half minutes. <laughs> you know, so there's no problem there. I mean Yannick um Yannick Burrell, he beat me in the semi final of the Berlin Vice Bar tournament. Hmm. He did me 15 5 in two minutes. Right? That wasn't boring. No. Well not do it was painful, but it was
0: not boring. <laughs> you would have settled for a boring one. You? Absolutely. You <laughs> edged, you edged nine, eight. Exactly, yes, quite. <laughs> okay. And um, you did mention that you now you know work for the Impulse. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you do here. Um,
2: so this building, top floor of the building, is the Leon Paul Fencing Centre, and I am the manager of that. And along with that, I have several other departments. So the hire kit that is used for competitions in the UK, uh, the Leon Paul Junior Series, which is our um, entry-level kiddie event for under 9s, 11s, 13s, and 15s. I, I'm the guy who runs that. And then parts, um, running, apart from running events here, I head up DT for British fencing events now for the last couple of years. So um, if you if you enter the Eden Cup or the um, the Camden International Sabre, I'll be the guy at the top of the stairs shouting at people wearing a suit. <laughs> and it is, it is now the only time I wear a suit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's what I do here. And, and I say my, my, my passion is Epe. Um, I do a little bit of coaching, but not a lot. We have an Epe club here. Um, but I, I really enjoy running competitions. Mm. So the logistics of it, the actual timetable of planning and the actual carrying out of the event, that's what I really, really enjoy here. Yeah. So as opposed to unblocking the toilets or uh, the other, the <laughs> other glamorous like, jobs that the fencing yeah, centre manager uh, does here. Yeah,
0: um, I mean, you do have a, a richly deserved reputation for running the best competitions in the UK, efficiently run, run to time, get lost of fencing in, good referees. Um, so what's what's the secret? Um, because I mean, we've both been at competitions. Um, yeah, we we met at the Birmingham, for example. <laughs> <laughs> Not to name any particular competition. Okay. I mean, I may edit that one out. But yes, I mean, there are There was a long time where competitions seemed to take all day without very much happening. Whereas now, the competitions you run are the absolute reverse of that. Well, there's there's no great secret to be honest.
2: Um it's just just planning and preparation. Um, the difference is, I do this for a living. So in my four years at Leon Paul, I've won about 150 competitions, all in. Where if you run one competition a year and you do it for ten years, mm. you've run ten competitions. Yeah. So and also if you try and remember something you did a year ago, you remember what you did well, what you did badly. Whereas I'm doing one every weekend. Yeah. So I'm. Um, I say, and, I, and I've got a passion for it. I work with a great team. Um, people who work on DT with me, like Francine, Rob, um, the British fencing people. They're actually they're, they're really eager to learn. Mm-hmm. and Fra- francine's another um she's a saber fencer but we still get on okay okay it's um, but- yeah but she's another very efficient um person so we worked together well we were lucky enough to be invited to the copenhagen cadet Epe tournament so we went over to copenhagen and ran their competition for them which was a very pleasant weekend um but it's just about planning you make a plan you stick to a plan yeah and the, and you don't mess around so uh, as we say and um, so as soon as a pool comes in you put it in the computer you print the next round you put it out <laughs> I, I know it's, it's, it sounds so simple and yet we've been with so many competitions
0: for that it seems to be almost impossible to do
2: i, I know it, it is and that's why um people say to me what's your secret and i'm like well there is no secret but i just pretend there is one yeah make yourself invaluable that's exactly, exactly yeah that's right so um when um my employers at leon paul said um you've got to write a document so just in case you're not here we can run a competition mm-hmm. and i said well yeah but then you could then you could sack it's me planning your own departure yeah isn't I'm, not, I'm not gonna write this down no. and eventually they said to me right <laughs> Unless you write this document, there will be no bonus for you. So case. I've now written this document yeah. and I gave it to him. And, and um, they said, Good. And, and I remember Alex Paul saying, Right, good. So if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, we're going to be okay. I went, Thanks, boss. Yeah, I would cross the street really carefully. <laughs> I was, was going to no say, Well, yeah.
0: we've got plans for you.
2: Well, he, he, his, his argument was always um, when I said, You know, if, if I tell you how to do my job, you won't, you can get someone to do this a lot cheaper than I do it. <laughs> and then um, he's like, well, what, what are we going to do, John, if you get hit by a bus? Mm. I said, Well, well, obviously, you start planning the John
0: Willis Memorial open, don't you? That's the uh... yeah. Well, you have somebody whoever ran it would have a set of instructions now to do it really well, exactly. So, so it's not all bad news, <laughs> <laughs> John. Thanks very much indeed for talking to me today. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I'll, I'll let you get back to unblocking the toilets, Cheers, sure. and uh, hopefully, see you again Always soon. Always a pleasure, thank you. <laughs>